Hey everyone, before we start today's episode, I have one ask of my listeners. I've been doing some digging into how to grow the Inner Olympian, and one of the biggest ways I've found to grow the podcast is through show reviews. Reviews take less than 60 seconds, and they make a huge difference for podcasters like myself. Now, with that being said, it would mean the world to me if you could head on over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review for the show. Thank you so much in advance. Now back to the episode. But people have different versions of success, and they need to define success for themselves. Your success cannot be my success. I'm not made like you. I'm not meant to live and walk your path. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Inner Olympian. Inner Olympian. Inner Olympian podcast. You, you, you're rocking with the best. You just put the needle. Hey everyone, it's Pilate Achmale. Hey, hey everybody, Jared Curry here. Hey everybody, it's Marissa Papasantino here. Hey everyone, it's Misha Powell. Hey. I'm Pierce Lepage. Hey guys, Alicia here. Hey guys, this is Tia Devlin. Hey guys, my name's Khadija. Make sure you check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you to head over to the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. And I want you guys to check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you all to do me a favor and go check out the Inner Olympian podcast. You won't want to miss it. You won't regret it. You gotta do it. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Inner Olympian Podcast, but the goal is to inspire you and help you achieve the things that you actually want to achieve by tapping into your Inner Olympian. My name is Shego McIndae. I am a two-time Canadian Olympian, and I'm your host. Hey, listen, I believe that you don't need to go to the Olympics to be an Olympian. I believe that being an Olympian comes down to the way that you think, act, and live, and that everyone has the potential to tap into their Inner Olympian by changing their mindset. This is episode... 43. And hey, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show and thanks for listening. And for those of you who've been listening for a while now, as always, I want to give you a big shout out. You guys are awesome. Thanks so much for all the love and support. It means a lot and I appreciate you. In this episode, I get to sit down and chat with visual artist and photographer Tony Lovejoy. Tony is a full-time visual artist based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. She's been creating images for over 30 years. She began her career as a photojournalist photographing sports before moving on to fashion and editorial work in Australia in the 80s. She moved back to the States to continue her fashion work before beginning to work in the film and commercial world in Phoenix and LA. In this episode, we discuss self-sabotage, defining success for yourself, determining your true north versus magnetic north, things she'd like to redo, the three things that have affected her the most on her journey, and much, much more. This was a thrill ride of a conversation from start to finish. Me and Tony just decided, I guess, to, you know, rent out a submarine and just go as deep as possible, essentially. There's so much we cover in this episode, and I don't want to give it away, but this is one of those episodes where, you know, I can't really sum it all up in less than two or three minutes. I will say that if it's possible for you, you know, grab a pen grab a piece of paper, take notes. Tony's very open, she's very vulnerable, and she really shares her story and her experiences, the good and the bad. You will walk away from this episode having learned something. Tony, shout out to you. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to do this. And without further ado, here's Tony. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Inner Olympian podcast. I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I am super excited um, for today's conversation. You know, I've been really 
I guess, fortunate to have conversations with really incredible people. And this is a really uh, special conversation and special for many reasons. But one of the reasons why it's special is because of the way that I've met this individual. My guest today, very fortunate, very honored to have Tony Lovejoy on the show. So Tony, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to sit down and chat with me. Thank you. I'm happy, happy to be here. Yeah. So real quick, how I met Tony before I kind of introduce uh, her to you guys. Uh, We actually met on the app called Clubhouse. And I'm pretty sure many of you have have heard of Clubhouse. Maybe some of you are on it. Um, If you are, give Tony and I a follow. Quick plug. But we we met on Clubhouse in a room. I forget what the room was called, but I was just in the room, just kind of taking it in. And I was like, wow, some of the the gems that she was dropping were just absolutely amazing. And I was totally vibing with you. And so afterwards, I just I sent I sent you a message and I was like, you know what? I really vibe with you. And I think that you would have an amazing, you'd be an amazing guest um, on the show. And if you're open to do it. And so here we are today, having never met in person. Really met over voice, which is crazy to think about at this time and, and, and day. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, super fortunate and grateful for you to be on the show. Tony, again, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. And, you know, I'm trying to think what room it was, what I said, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm talking and stuff just comes out and I'm like, I said that? Where did that come from? <laughs> You know, we were talking before and I'm like, I know this person and Clubhouse kind of does that to people. And it's not even a false sense of connection because you're not engaging on a physical level. It's all auditory. You're just hearing voices. You're hearing the intent and the emotion behind the voice. You're able to read. Is this person being pretentious? Are they just, you know? whatever, they come in with a certain energy and you pick up Mm. on that very quickly. That's a really good point that you mentioned about Clubhouse. I think that's something that I like. And you know, it's funny, as a random side note, I read a study somewhere and, you know, somebody can fact check me on this uh, because maybe maybe I read it wrong or maybe I'm just remembering it wrong. But I read something to the effect where people are more honest over voice-to-voice conversations, quote-unquote honest, or I guess they're more likely to be vulnerable. I think that was, I think that's better what it is. They're more likely to be vulnerable over voice-to-voice than like kind of face-to-face because face-to-face, people try to put on the show, try to grandstand a little bit when it's just, but when it's just voice-to-voice, that element is taken away so people can just talk a bit more naturally and they feel more comfortable being able to share things. Anyway, just as a random side note, maybe, maybe that's why, but for sure, like, I can't really remember what you were saying either, to be honest, but... I- <laughs> <laughs> it was so deep. <laughs> it was good. It was great. <laughs> well, I said something well today. So real quick, everybody, I'm just going to let you know a little bit of, of, about who she is. Uh, Tony Lovejoy is a full-time visual artist based in Charlotte, North Carolina. She was raised by a renowned American Western artist and educated at the Colorado Institute of Art. She's been creating images for over 30 years. She began her career as a photojournalist in Iowa, photographing sports, moving on to fashion and editorial work in Australia in the 80s. After moving back to the States to continue her fashion work, she spent a year interning in a fashion studio before beginning to work in the film and commercial world in Phoenix and LA. In 2008, she made the switch from film to digital and began exploring fine art photography full time. A sampling of her work can be found on her website, uh, www.mynameislovejoy.com. And we'll mention that website again um, near the end. Again, Tony, super grateful to have you uh, on the show today. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here as well. 
Yeah. We'll just be a mutual fan club right now. <laughs> so I want I want to kind of get a little bit of, of your backstory. I mean, I kind of read it, but from your own words and your own experience, how you got into photography and art, and I guess kind of how you got to where you are today. You grew up in Iowa during a time, I think, that is very different from today. It is and it isn't. I would have thought by now we had come further, but we haven't. So how I started, um, you know, my parents, my father was black. My mother was white, German. Um, and they got divorced when I was in the first grade, right? So we had lived in this small town, Mason City, Iowa. When they got divorced, my mother moved us to another small town, Fort Dodge, Iowa. She moved us into this neighborhood called the Flats. Well, here she is, this white woman raising four mixed children. And this is in the 60s and early 70s. And I and my siblings were beat up almost every single day. And, you know, before school wasn't so much a problem, but it was kind of scary on the walk to school, watching our back during recess, I was beat up. And after school, we would kind of linger, hang back, wait for everybody else to go home. And then we had a long trek home. And sometimes we'd make it home without an incident. And other times it was a fight during recess. And this went over let's see, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, um, the teachers finally got a clue. They start, I started having to hang out in the library during recess. And I came upon a Gordon Parks photography book and his poetry was in there. Fourth grade, I literally knew I want to be a photographer. I can see myself sitting in that library and I can see the page that I was looking at and I can see the words. I can't quite, you know, read them, but the visual where I was in this library and knowing this is what I wanted to be was and is deeply, deeply ingrained in me. And over the course of years, my first job was in the ninth grade. And I, you know, was taking um, photography classes in high school. And I was in, a, once again, another very racist town. Um, but I went to the local newspaper, said I want to be a photographer. I am a photographer. Hire me. And bless this editor's heart. He went ahead and gave me a job to go around town and photograph, you know, what was happening. So I was first published in the ninth grade of high school. Um, then I went on to... Um, uh, Christian College, Oklahoma Christian uh, University. And I took my major was communications. And I did, um, uh, I was a DJ at, at the um, jazz radio station, right? I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I kind of had a crush on the, the manager. It's the only reason I did it. Um, anyway, so it really wasn't meeting my needs creatively. So I left there, went to Denver, and enrolled in the Colorado Institute of Art. And, you know, as you said in the bio, my father was an artist, and he was an artist from the time I was in six years old, you know, and he made his living until the day he died, creating art. 
Mm. And, you know, literally on his deathbed, the last eight days of his life, he had been working on a painting of Obama. And he was telling my sisters, two of my sisters are um, oil and sculpture artists, and he was telling them how to complete the painting. And when we were in the hospital, he was talking to three of us about ensuring his legacy continued. So my website, I know I jumped way ahead in the story, but it's kind of how I talk. Um, my website, my name is Lovejoy, is based on how my dad would introduce himself at art shows. You know, he would we'd be at the art shows with him, art festivals, and he would put his hand out to whoever had walked up to his booth and he'd say, hi, my name is Lovejoy, Jimmy Lovejoy. Nice to meet you. And so that's that's my business name. My name is Lovejoy, and that's in honor of him. Anyway, I'm at art school and I was living with my dad and stepmother and going to school and then they moved. And um, I think I was 19 years old and I got a little studio apartment. I worked at Sears in the children's department to pay for paper and darkroom supplies and my schooling. And man... I was so broke that, you know, I put $5 of gas in my car to try to get somewhere and I would run out of gas all the time. And, you know, there was this dude who lived in my apartment complex. He was a cab driver and he would somehow be around. Now, looking back, I'm like, was he stalking me? I don't even know. Right. But he gave me money. And, there was a, a city bus driver who also lived there, and he would feed me all the time. I'd show up at his apartment, and I met him years later, and he said, Lovejoy, I always knew you were hungry when you came to my door. So I was definitely the epitome of the starving artist. Mm. So from there, I moved off to Australia. And, you know, the, the thing I love about young people now that I'm not young is their boldness and their just absolute undying belief in themselves and what they can do. And I was that person, right? I came to um, the newspaper there. And, you know, I said, my name is Lovejoy. I'm a photographer. I brought my portfolio. And they're like, no, no, we're good. We have a photographer. And I very boldly said, yes, but they're not good. And I'm much better. Please look at my book. And they did. And they hired me and the dude that his spot. Um, he hated me forever because photography, <laughs> photography back then was really a man's world, right? Mm. You know, that whole song, It's a Man's World. This was definitely that. Um, but I didn't really live that way. My father had never taught us to be that way. And while I was over there, um, I met and sang on stage with Stevie Wonder, and they had asked me to be one of their photographers. And I stupidly, I was 24 years old. I, I said, no, you know, I'm not really a studio photographer. I'm a natural light photographer. I'm going to go back to the States in a year. And, you know, I'm going to intern there. And, you know, when I do that, then, you know, we'll talk. Well, missed opportunity, hmm. missed opportunity, but we did become friends after that. Nevertheless, I did come back to the States, intern for another studio um, and learned everything that I could from this guy. And then we had a falling out because I had been offered a job to shoot um, 
Playgirl. And that was just not my thing, but it was a $10,000 job. This guy would have gotten 6000 I would have gotten 4000 So, you know, it was a big deal. And at the time, you know, this was all film work. And mm. we had representatives, film reps, and they would give us film and, you know, all this stuff. And so my rep knew another photographer. And so he took me to that studio and I started sharing studio space over there and launched on my own. Then I, um, I did fashion photography there. And at some point in the nineties, I kind of burned out. I did not at the time know how to feed the creative muse. You know, I just gave and gave and gave and I didn't really intake anything. The last job that I did before I stopped shooting for a while was on a missionary, um, on an Indian reservation, I was documenting documenting two missionaries that were working on the Navajo reservation, and I spent two weeks there. And it was really life-altering to see these people and the work that they were doing and how they were embracing the Navajo culture, not just trying to change it, but live with the people. And you know, I photographed it and I thought, gosh, this is really meaningful work. And going back to how I started with the whole Gordon Parks thing, Gordon Parks changed the world with his photography. And I really wasn't with fashion. I mean, it was fun. I was like an it girl for a while, walk into any club I wanted. And, you know, that was great. But I wasn't really impacting the world. I was very flighty. I came back from that to like about two hours worth of messages for models and models, mothers and agents. And after listening to, you know, these people in their lives and going into hogans and dirt floors, right? And and being with these people, I thought I was living a very superficial life. And that's just a statement about me. It's not really a statement about other people and and what they're shooting and how they're living. Everybody has a purpose and a destiny. So I had a job to go to the Greek islands for a month and photograph. Kodak had sponsored the film. An architect had sponsored the trip. And I was going to shoot for a month. And at that point, I gave it up, gave my equipment up, gave up studio space, Um, I had my daughter and I think she was maybe in the fourth grade at this point. And I moved to Denver and I started waiting tables because I realized that I needed to learn how to serve people. When I say, you know, very superficial, very flighty, literally that was me. And, and so I really didn't know how to serve anyone. So I waited tables And um, I did that for three months and I just, I was waiting for inspiration. And at that time, I met a young guy who was in a gang and we just started talking and I realized that I had had opportunities in my life that this guy never had, right? His mom, single mom, working three, four jobs and she was not around to give to her children, to teach her children. Like her legacy was what her parents' legacy was. And that's all she had to give. And I thought I had all these other experiences with my father and my mother, even though they were divorced. So I started a nonprofit organization, did that for three years, was awarded, you know, the most outstanding youth program in Colorado by the governor. 
And I think I was 27 at this point. And again, very young, very naive. I didn't really understand what was happening to me, the opportunities that were in front of me. Um, I had all this funding. I had everybody giving to me and I still ran out of money, used all of my money. And we were back to being poor again, right? I was as poor as the people that I was serving, which was fine, but it limited me. So I had to start working. So to quicken this story for the next cow. 15 years, 20 years, I did accounting work. Like I stopped shooting and I have this very weird left brain, right brain thing. And I was very good at financial management. I did stuff for British Petroleum. I did stuff for this company, Kebacor, second largest print company in the world, the largest in the US. And then my family died my mother, my father, my grandmother in the span of two years. Mm. And um, I thought how purposeless once again, my life is I am supporting a business supporting other people's endeavors. I started shooting again in 2008. And I was shooting with my daughter's digital camera, right? I, I had bought her a camera, not myself, just a little point and shoot. I flew off to Seattle and started shooting. And it was like a sleeping giant and it woke up and I was possessed again. And um, I was flying home from that trip and got a call right when I was stepping on the plane and I was told that my grandmother had died. So I got on the plane and I'm weeping, weeping, weeping. And I sit in a chair and I know everybody's looking at me. Literally everyone is turning in their seats. And I, um, I'm I'm crying, but I'm looking out the window and somebody felt sorry enough for me. They're like, do you want the window seat? Because I was sitting between two people. And um, I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and so I sit at the window, the plane takes off and I'm looking outside and it's Mount Rainier and the clouds are this amazing, you know, the scene was amazing. Man, I'm crying and I'm picking up my camera and shooting. You know, I got the camera up, click, click, <laughs> click, click. And I know these people are looking at me like this chick is a freak, right? And and I can't help it. I cannot help shooting through the pain. And that is literally what I did for the next three years was shoot through the pain of loss. I photographed my mother as she was going through hospice, as my family was dealing with that loss, I photographed my father up to the point he was in the crematorium and they pulled him out for, you know, one last goodbye. He was frozen. I photographed him in the hallway as we were leaving. You know, the camera became my uh, life sustaining tool. It was the only way I survived. And so the last person died, the love of my life for 23 years um, after my divorce. And when he died, it was, I was living in Iowa and I had been doing some fine art work. I was working for British Petroleum. And it was at that point, I thought, if I don't leave Iowa, if I don't just start shooting and, and, come back to myself, I too will die. 
I too will not survive this, this life. It, it, you know, it was like four tsunamis had hit without time for recovery. And the life that I had built for myself was not a life that I had envisioned early on. And so I sold my home. I put stuff in storage. I took at that point my youngest child, 10 years old, and took her out of school. And we traveled around the U.S. for a year in a scamp trailer photographing the U.S. And that's how I landed in Charlotte. And I have been shooting full time since. That was a really long story. (laughs) So that brings us to today. <laughs> it, it seems like you've experienced more than most people would experience in their lifetime, you know, and I can't imagine the the things that you've seen or experienced during that time. You're right. Uh, definitely a lot of lifetimes, definitely a lot of stories. Yeah. I'm not even sure where to begin. I think, <laughs> you know, I guess as a bit of a segue, a lot of your art, and the photographs that you take in are birthed from that pain. And, you know, for you, how was that pain inspired or I guess fueled your work? Um, my mother was a, a therapist, a counselor, and she used to say that each emotion brought with it a gift. And most emotions we run from, we, we run from fear, we run from pain. And instead, I had to sit in that pain and I had to stay there. And and there's a danger in staying in that pain. There's also a danger in avoiding the pain. And I certainly took both approaches. I, um, when my father died, even though I photographed through it, I also, I think I slept walked. I went through life sleeping. I would lay in bed, watch Mm. movies, sleep. One day, my daughter came home from school and I was still in bed and she woke me up and I I wasn't even aware that the day had passed. And and I had to ask her how she got to school. I didn't even remember taking her to school. And so it was a wake up and I thought, okay, see, I'm, I'm being swallowed by the darkness of pain. I'm being swallowed by that grief. And I hadn't befriended the pain. I had allowed the pain to squash me and swallow me instead of the other way around. And so I had to reverse that. And um, it was, it was kind of, what is that song? Hello, darkness, my old friend. Mm. Right. That was this. And, and so I read the book of Ecclesiastes and, um, I think I, at that point, I understood that, that line where he said, all is vanity. The only thing that is worth doing is serving God. And, you know, that may not speak to every person because, uh, you know, every person's not a believer and that's their thing. But for me, it spoke to me. And I thought this person wrote from a place of grief. They had suffered loss and they see you know, my dad on his deathbed is worried about his painting. And my grandmother on her deathbed, she used her will to punish people. My mother, you know, she used hers to, again, check people. And 
all of the family suffered from those things. So I finally, having, you know, reversed the pain, swallowed it and came to my own sort of understanding. And um, I thought I need to be purposeful in life now. And I know that every single person on this planet, pain is universal, loss is universal. And so, you know, and it's a club, a membership, you don't want anyone to be in, right? The the loss of a parent or, or a loved one. But once you're in it, you embrace anyone else who's come into it. And so I can speak from a place of empathy. I can speak from a place of love and care. And I want, like when I'm shooting nature, I shoot from a place because I I wanted to stop just photographing something beautiful, technically sound. I'm not a technical shooter. I'm an emotional shooter. I chase the light. I chase the emotion. I chase the feeling and then try to get technically correct afterward. Um, so even with that, I needed the nature photographs to speak to beauty, to speak to pain, to speak to a person to move them. Hmm. And my fine artwork, you know, the citizen of no nation girl in the red beret speaks to a different type of pain. So that was the long answer. The short answer is I use pain to speak to people and show them the gift that comes with it. You know, it's funny because you mentioned something that I have um, thought about and I've done, which is sitting in the pain. And um, and as you mentioned, it, I was smiling because it's not an easy thing to do to sit in the midst of your pain when you go, when you're going through something. Yes. And it's a very tough experience to be there in the midst of all the emotion when you're kind of, you know, just the word I'm going to use is discombobulated. Right. You're sitting there and you're like, you don't know what's going on. And it's just you're just a mess. Right. But sitting in there and being able to just like allow it instead of fighting it. Right. Where's that? Uh, what's that line? The Lion King. Right. You no. Know, instead of running from instead of running from the pain. I, I'm messing up that quote. So I'm sorry to all the Lion King fans. I'm going to go there. look it up now. <laughs> but he, he's talking, but, he, but he's mentioning how, you know, it's, you know, you can either learn from it or like or run from it. Right. And sometimes just like you mentioned, and it's really interesting how you like you kind of mentioned how instead of like instead of dealing with it and facing it. Right. You kind of just allow it to, to press you down. I think sometimes the fear of facing that pain and we were kind of mentioning this, you know, before we even spoke about how a lot of the times it's, it's that fear that keeps us from really being able to experience and almost sometimes even enjoy I mean, life, obviously, in general, but just a lot of the different things that we'll go through. Right. Well, so you'll you'll know this because, you know, you're an amazing athlete and the discipline that comes with training. I think that when you walk with grief or you walk with fear, that you have to walk with discipline with it, right? So the pain, it still comes up for me. There are days, you know, that I will have a moment that is so glorious. My immediate thought is, I want to, you know, I'm going to call my mother. And that thought comes so quickly unbidden and it shocks me and it Mm. hurts me deeply. 
And instead of, you know, quickly pushing it off, my discipline now is I will give you 15 minutes. You have the stage for 15 minutes. Wash over me, sweep through me, envelope me. But within 15 minutes, I will step out of you and you can come with me. I understand that you're my life partner but you will not control me. And the same applies with fear. You know, people let fear drive the car where I have to choose. And I had to learn this on the road with my daughter. Here I am with a 10 year old and we're two girls and we're, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere and we're hiking in, you know, back country in Yellowstone and you go, okay, I am afraid. I, I am afraid, but Fear, you must sit in the passenger seat and I will drive this car. I will be conscious of you. I will take the the gift of wisdom to stay alert, to stay aware of my surroundings, but I will drive the car, not you. Mm. And so that's kind of how I, I had to operate. But that took some overcoming and I overcame it. Because of my young daughter, right, on this trip, um, six months into the trip, at that point, we had been swept down the Colorado River. And, you know, the Colorado River in um, the Grand Canyon and in um, Utah, the current is strong. You cannot swim up current and make any headway. Maybe an Olympian can. I don't know. Y'all are pretty strong, but I suck as a swimmer. So maybe, but you, it was hard. It was a workout to just walk up current, right? And so we were doing this thing floating along and, and we missed our mark and the ground dropped out from under us. We couldn't stand in cliffs on both sides from where we were going to be swept down to. And, you know, it, it was pretty bad. And so we hit a, um, a beaver dam, I grab the stick, snatch my daughter, and I'm on my tippy toes and the current is washing me back and forth, right? I'm kind of rocking and my child is unaware of what's really going on. She's like, let's swim up. And I'm like, are you nuts? We can't swim up, you nitwit. We can't, we're gonna know. And and so she's trying to let go of me. And anyway, we're hollering for help. Some guy tries to reach us with this long pole. He doesn't. And I have to make this decision, hoping that the beaver dam creates an eddy and will snatch us inward rather than shooting us out. And so I tell her, here's the plan. And we let go and I swing and, you know, we go in. Thankfully, the beaver wasn't there because they're quite vicious around their home. Um, we, our feet get cut. The guy pulls us up with the pole up the cliff and, you know, we're all shaky and I'm like, I almost killed my daughter. And then after that, we get swept. We get caught in a tornado. We get pushed off the side of the road. We ride ourselves. We seek refuge in backwoods, Louisiana. Okay. In a place where we had been told the day before, don't go down certain roads because, you know, very racist, very dangerous for you guys. And I have to make a decision. Seek shelter, possibly be killed in someone's basement or be killed on the road in this tornado. And so we bang on a door, we seek shelter, we don't die, obviously, here I am today. But the minute the storm passes, these people boot us out of their house, 
the minute the news says it's past them and we're back on the road and we're driving, the storm cells growing, you know, 911, we call on SAR and we get routed out. Okay, so those are a couple of concussions later, a couple of experiences later, we're now traveling into New Mexico, another storm is brewing. And I see it and fear just swells up in me and like choking me. Okay. And my daughter says, mom, how can you even enjoy what we're doing in the world? You're always afraid. And she went back to playing on her DSI. Like she had just dropped this bomb and shook me to my core because, you know, I'm spouting all this faith and, you know, here I am living in fear. And she's like, I thought you believed in God. And, you know, back to, right, da, 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 with her DSI. And I'm driving along and I'm just like, do I believe? Do I? Do I? When she, when I tell her everything's okay, she believes me, right? She, mm-hmm. I tell her, go to sleep. We're fine. Two minutes later, she's snoring, and there I am, riddled with fear, riddled with fear. But key point here is I'm still doing it anyway. Like, even then, I didn't let my fear stop me, but fear was driving the car, right? I was the passenger. So I'm driving along, I'm in the Tahoe, the camper's in back, and I'm wrestling with my faith and my fear. And I mean, I'm that close to saying, I don't believe. I mean, really close. And and I was like, no, 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 no. I have seen like the Israelites in Egypt. I have seen the parting of the waters. I have seen the, the fire guiding me, the cloud cover. It has been my whole life that I have been taken care of. So why am I choosing this fear-based life? And then I realized you cannot have faith and fear. You can't hold them in the same hand. You can't have fear and love and hold it in the same hand. Mm-hmm. And I chose. I, and, and there was this moment and it was surreal. I silently was like, yes, I believe. And dude, right in front of me, I hadn't even seen it, but a hawk had been flying near my car and then just swooped in front. Dr- Flew right into, uh, you know, right in front of the car and off into the horizon. It was the most incredible little moment that I'll never forget it. And I'm always trying to photograph a hawk doing that now, like some kind of prophetic moment, you know, life changing moment. I've yet to capture it, but nevertheless, it changed me. And at that point, I began to drive the car. And I began to acknowledge fear as a passenger, but not in control. So, Mm. yeah. That's really key. I think, you know, you mentioned it came down to like a very conscious choice. You had to make in a moment. And sometimes I think we hope and we wish for something something to happen when really we have to make a very deliberate conscious choice. Sometimes that involves being in a moment, you know, similar to yours. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to making that conscious choice and that conscious decision. And examining your life, right? Like you can't be oblivious to everything that has taken place in your life. And and it does require self-examination, self-awareness. 
you know, giving an account, a reckoning of your yeah. own life and being brutally honest with yourself. Yeah. And even to that point, right? Sometimes when, when you let the pain and the fear numb you in a sense, right? Or cover you or just blind press you. you down, blind you. That's, that's a really good word to what your responsibility is in terms of making that choice or being conscious of the choice you have to make. You don't, you don't end up making that choice because now you're allowing that fear and, and, you know, the pain to, to block you from doing something that you need to do to eventually help you to, to move forward. And I think that's, that's so interesting. And, and you're right. It, it does come down to that conscious decision. I'm wondering for you in that moment, how did you come about that choice? If someone were to come to you and, you know, and ask you, how do I make this conscious choice? What is something that you would tell them? Um, I would probably share with them um, really a very painful experience because, you know, I narrated how I broke through that point. But self-examination, facing hard truths is a very difficult thing, right? I think there's two types of fear. There's legitimate fear fire's hot, I'm afraid of running into a burning building, and then the fear of what if, what if, what if, and whatever those what ifs are for each person. That's not real fear. That's the kind that will debilitate you, Mm -hmm. right? And prevent you from your destiny, prevent you from your purpose. So painful, painful conversation. My middle daughter, who's one of the most brilliant of my children. I mean, um, brutally honest and, you know, checks me on a regular basis. And so, you know, raising her, um, I had this concept of myself as a parent, that I was a cool parent, that I was a good parent, that I was making different choices than my parents. And um, we had this kind of come to Jesus moment where, she like let me know where I failed her. And up until last year, I would have denied everything she said, right? Like you're tripping. You know, I was an awesome parent and you were this child and you know, you were disobedient and you you, you were you, you, you. And I chose out of fear mm-hmm. to deny my own part. And I you know, I listened to her and her hurt and her anger was deep. It was profound. And no one wants to speak to their own inadequacies. No one wants to acknowledge how they fall short, right? Like, we're talking before this and, you know, you're like, I'm so glad you're on. And, and I'm thinking, but who am I? Right. Because I know where I fall short. I know that I don't meet the standard that I think I met or that I want to meet. Right. So I have this conversation with Buddha and her name is India. Her nickname's Buddha. Um, and she's hurt and she's, she's calling me out. And then, you know, I say, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm listening and we hang up and I can't even swallow the words that she's told me, right? They're like out here in my head, outside of my head. I can't even let them sink in because I'm afraid of what that will mean. What will it mean to acknowledge 
that for her, with her, I sucked for her. You know, everybody wants to say, I did my best with what I had and be gracious with yourself. All of that is true. But before you can really come to that, you're going to have to embrace the suck. (laughs) Right? You have it just like grief. You have to sit in it. And so no sooner do we finish the conversation. And I don't even think an hour had passed. And she had blasted off an email to me. And the, the defense mechanism in me wanted to type away in response, in defend. And I had to make a conscious choice to not defend. I, I did what my mother teaches her clients to do, had taught them to do, which was to write the letter, but not send it. Say the words, but not say them, right? Just to get it out, to, to meet that insatiable need to be right, to be heard, but then allow yourself to not be right and to not be heard. It's enough that I wrote it out. I didn't have to say it to her. I had to let her be the most important person. And um, so it, it took me a month. It took me a month to respond to it. And it took a month of sitting in that and accepting, accepting that um, who I was for her wasn't enough for who she was and what she needed. And it was only in allowing myself to see the reality of who I was, to see the insufficiency, to understand my own story, right? The whole A Citizen of No Nation is all about knowing our history, unpacking it, Here I was researching genealogy and lineage, but I hadn't unpacked my story with Buddha. I hadn't unpacked my story as a parent and was I emotionally capable? And and she was being raised during the time of all these deaths and in the time Mm. of upset when it was most important to her. When a parent was most important to a teenager in their struggle, I was unavailable. So it's uh, it's what they say in AA, that whole, I, I wish I could remember the terminology. You kind of have to write out your sins. You have to face your sins. You have to see them and not run from them. Yeah. And that's what I finally did is accept it. And so, you know, right now, so this is that whole transparency thing, right? Where you don't have to be afraid to ask me anything because I'm just going to share it. Right now, she's not talking to me. And for the first time, I'm okay with that. I'm not begging her, please speak to me, because I understand that she too now has a process she has to walk through. You know, our parents are always somebody than other than than who we wanted them to be. We always want want them to be some, you know, unless you are just blessed with amazing, leave it to beaver parents. Um, parents have their shortcomings and, and they don't always meet the needs. And so she's got to walk her, her own journey of, of coming to that. But I, I'm like, I'm not okay with that. I hurt her or didn't meet her needs, but I've accepted it. I've accepted the grief of that. I walk with it, I live with it, and I support her in her journey. And so 
That's what I would tell somebody. Stand in it, look it dead in the face, acknowledge the suck, and then do better. Hmm. I read a quote by uh, Mike Tyson, and he was talking to somebody about, you know, being in the ring and if he was afraid of being hit. And he mentioned that, you know, it's the fear of being hit that's actually scarier than being hit itself. And I, and I heard that and I just stopped. I'm like, wow, that's, that's so powerful because I think that's what happens a lot for us, right? We have all these different things that are running in our mind and it, it freezes us from doing what we need to do, even to potentially evade the hit because maybe we have the ability to evade it, right? Or take it if we have the ability to take it. But at the end of the day, you know, if you take a hit, it's not as bad as, as the way that I played it out in my head at the end of the day. It's still a hit. No, no one wants to get punched in the face at the end of the day, right? But the fear of thinking about getting punched in the face versus actually taking the hit and being like, okay, I got hit. What do I need to do next? That's better than just thinking about what's going to happen and how I'm going to get hit. Yes. And sometimes you need the hit. You've got to take the hit in order to get your hit in. You've got to roll with it because the minute that hit happens, you have your opening. Oh, right. Um, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt. I have lived by this motto um, for a very long time. And that's probably why I'm not sure if it was Eleanor Roosevelt that um, that said it. The whole feel the fear and do it anyway. And then you take whatever you're afraid of. You walk it through to the end. You imagine the worst case scenario and you start from there. What's the worst that can happen? Let's say it's fighting. I lose. The worst that could happen is I lose. Can I handle losing? Is there a lesson in losing? And then walk that back to winning, right? And so with Buddha, um, fill the fear and do it anyway. I'm afraid of hearing the truth, okay? Do it anyway. Hear the truth. And what's the worst that could happen? She's not talking to me. Can I handle that? Yes, as long as I know she's healthy and blossoming, blooming, living in her destiny and her purpose, that's good enough. What will I gain from it? A life lesson, because I can then share my failure with someone else who needs it, who I can prevent it. I was meant to take the hit so someone else can get the lesson. That's good. I'm worried that my daughter will hear this podcast and be like, why are you talking about me in public? (laughs) But that's okay, because that's that's my story. That's part of my story. So it's all right. Yeah, you sure? Absolutely. Because you know what? There, I know that your audience is younger, but someone in your audience has an issue with their parent, right? Mm -hmm. India and I's journey and um, her her journey is hers and her story is hers. This is my story with her, right? So they need to know that um, their parents are human being. They're not perfect. I don't care if they project that. Don't tell their stories. Uh, sidebar for a quick second, right? I have all my journals from when I was 27, 26. And, you know, here I was out here judging my children, like what they were doing, man. I came up on those journals and I was like, ooh, you were no different up here trying to act like you know something. You only know something because of what you lived through. So share that. So, yeah, it's okay. I'm, I'm not sharing her secret. I'm sharing my secret. 
you're right. You, you only know what you know based off of what yeah. you've gone through. Yeah, there's, and there's nothing there's, there's nothing wrong with that, with going through those experiences. Because like you said, sometimes, you know, I think collectively in life, you might have needed to take a blow so someone else can get that hit in for the collective experience for everybody. And, you know, secrets are a real problem, right? There's cool secrets, good secrets. Don't tell your mom I'm buying her this diamond ring. Don't tell so-and-so I'm about to propose to her. Those are good secrets. Bad secrets are the unhealthy things that that you want to keep hidden. But what I've learned from my mother is that secrets kept are bound to be repeated, right? Interesting. And so I, I keep going back to a citizen of no nation and uncovering family dynamics, family secrets. Like my, um, my great, great, great grandmother was a child born out of rape the slave master raping her mother. One of the photographs in this series is my daughter on a plantation under all these oak trees, live oak trees that you know people were hung on, right, lynched on. And so she's standing looking up and I have embedded in that image um, a photograph of an actual lynching and it's, it's very ghostly and you don't see it right away, but that history is embedded in that image. And then overlaid on that image is an historical document of my ancestor, Sylvia and her labor contract right after they were freed signed by the former slave owner who was also her father. Like, let that sink in. Sylvia, a girl aged eight years of age, she agrees to work on this plantation in exchange for food and clothing and medical services, you know, for the next year, signed by John C. Adamson, her father. And that secret with that family, so in the DNA matching, I reached out to that family, right? And I was really hoping this that it wasn't true because my family didn't talk about that. They did not tell this story. This isn't a story passed down. This was kept secret. And I was really hoping that it was not true until the DNA came in. And, and I just want you to know it choked me up. Mm. It hurt me. And, um, so I reached out to one of the Adamsons and, you know, this lady was like, oh, it's so interesting. And, you know, I said, so I'm looking for the slave manifest. I'm looking for the ledgers because the census reports at that point, you know, before Sylvie, you know, back to 1805 and before 1860, I think people are listed not by name. Male, 45, black. Female, aged eight, mulatto. That's how they're listed. So in family wills and so on, there are the names, right? Because they're passing on my ancestor in the will as an asset. You know, I gift you Sylvie Mm. as your slave and you can do with her what you want. Um, So I'm looking and there's a letter like that. I'm looking for that connection. And this woman's response is, our family didn't have slaves. And okay, I don't respond angrily because, you know, anger does nothing. Anger, there's no gift with with that kind of anger. 
that unless you take that gift and use it to empower you to take action, righteous anger is a good thing, right? That whole be angry and sin not. I turn that be angry and take action, take righteous action, take good action. And so I leave the door open and I respond to her. I'm happy to send you the documents to prove otherwise, because I'm looking for this. This chick cut me off so fast so fast. And I just thought, man, I wasn't asking to come to the family picnic. (laughs) I I just wanted information. I'm not showing up to condemn anyone, Mm. right? But now you stand condemned because you want to keep the secret. Something that you had said earlier, right? You're from Nigeria and you 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 come into the States and you see certain things and, and we act differently here. There on a talk I did a couple of weeks ago amongst photographers talking about the series, this guy was saying something about his history and how some of them couldn't tell their story. And I said, you know, the key word here is some of you don't know your story. All of us don't know our story. All of us get stopped at 1805 or 1810. And so for you, right? Your history and your story is intact. You can follow your lineage. You know the shoulders that you stand on. You know the ground that you walk on is sacred. But for many people here in the States and really anywhere, they don't know their stories. And and, and many young people don't really want to be burdened with learning the stories of their ancestors or asking their parents. And one thing that I've learned from losing my parents is I can no longer ask questions. Mm. I I look at my baby picture and and I think of myself and I think I could love that child. I would love that little girl. I would embrace her. What was she like? How was she? And those are questions we don't even ask, right? And, And what we also don't ask is, What made our parents tick? Who were they raised by? What do they remember? My grandmother, when she passed, she was 106, almost 107. Dude, that meant she was two years old when Harriet Tubman died. I was touching the hands of history and was so completely unaware. But I did interview her and I did get her stories. Um, But if people, even young people have their own secrets, letting fear block them from telling their story, from telling their truths, from, from revealing their true selves, is a mistake because someone can learn from it. But there is, there's wisdom to be had in choosing who you share with. And, um, I will say this is, this is another scripture that, um, I live by. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Yeah. Right. That is important. Who you choose to tell your story to, who you choose to be vulnerable with, being aware of who can hurt you and who can harm you until you're strong enough to know that no matter what anybody throws at you, you can stand. 
and you can stand when you know what came before you and you know that your ancestors stood strong. They may have suffered abuse, but they survived and you know they survived because you exist. Then you know that you too can stand up as long as you understand the ground you stand on is solid. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, so that whole truth can set you free. That's that's kind of how I feel. Like if I'm keeping a secret now, you can blackmail me. Right. Mm-hmm. If I'm so afraid of that being revealed, you can blackmail me. But when I have taken an account of the mistakes I've made and the reckoning, when somebody calls me out on it, I can absolutely say you're right. I did do that. I did suck. I was wrong. I was failing. I was, you know, vulnerable. I was lost. I was misguided, misinformed, whatever it was. You can own that. Hmm. As long as you're aware of who you are and what you did, you don't need to be afraid because nobody can do anything to you. That's really good. Is there a question, you know, that you wish that you would have asked yourself or that you wish you could have, you would have asked to, to kind of get the answer from earlier or that you don't have the answer to right now? You know, I saw that on your list of, of questions that, you know, you might ask. And I really thought a lot about that. Um, I'm hesitant here because what I'm about to say is going to sound maybe ridiculous, and I guess that's okay. Um, I would say no, only because I am where I am today because of what I didn't know yesterday, what I fell and, and fell colossally gave me what I have today so that I can then give that to someone else, right? So... I think that, you know, my purpose is made up of all the some parts of the stupidity, the wisdom, the brilliant and beautiful people who walked into my life, said what they said when they said it. I heard what I heard because of where I was at and what I knew then. So, no, there are things that I wish I could say to people. Okay. That, um... And that that would be my mother. And I hope that this doesn't make me cry, which already it is. Um, but everything that I'm saying now about, oh, let me take a breath here for a second. Um, everything that I say now about my understanding of who I am as a woman, who I am as a mother, how I fell short, the lessons that I've had to learn from my relationship with India. Um, I wish that my mother was alive today so that I could tell her I see her Mm. and I acknowledge her and I embrace her for what she did, what she wasn't able to do, who she was and the lessons that she gave me. You know, I would say that I was sorry for not seeing her when she needed to be seen, right? And loving her the way she needed to be loved. And I wasn't able to do that because of who I was at that time and how I was caught up in my own head and my own exactly 
what India has had to do, right? Be caught up in what wasn't done for me. And that's that whole secret thing. Like what, what we didn't unpack and deconstruct will impact the next person. And so had I unpacked earlier, had I deconstructed earlier, I could have embraced my mother. She may have been happier. She may have, you know, that, that's the thing that we all need is to be seen, to really, really be seen for who we are and to be loved in the place that we are right now and to not be having people wish we were something else. Like I am this right now. Tomorrow I may be something else, but love me today, right now, in this place. 100%. You know, it's when you talk about your your mom, but also your dad has had a really big impact on you as well. And, you know, like you mentioned, you're, you're an artist. The rest of your siblings are artists in some form or some way. Um, is, was there anybody else, you know, your mom or your dad that has, I guess, inspired you or maybe even... Like, I guess the way that you think, the way that you do your art. Yes. Yes. You know, I will give that credit to my dad. You know, my mom is definitely the person who gave me courage and strength and insight. But my dad, this dude was courageous in a different way, right? Sharecropper's son, um, father passed away when he was in the fourth grade, he had to leave school and share crop to help support his mother and eight other siblings. Um, so he had a hard life, ran away when he was 16, joined the circus, moved up to Iowa, you know, and started this whole new life. And he created an art. He received a Congress Inventors Award in Minnesota for the art that he created with a fourth grade education. And, you know, he he was the master salesman and he loved everybody. And he, you know, the whole statement, he just, you know, he was shucking and jiving and cajoling people, trading paintings for houses and horses and cars. And, you know, he fed his family with his art. And sometimes we live like kings and other times we live like paupers. But he believed in his process. And when he stopped working for, I'll say it like this, when he stopped working for the man and started working for him, the man, he he never looked back, not once. And, you know, he had every failure possible. What's the saying? Fail and fail fast. Mm. Do definitely live that. And he just, he never stopped. And so here I am. When my dad died, he was, um, I think, 76, 77. And he was still painting. He died thinking about his artwork. He ate, drank, and breathed his artwork. And I definitely do that now. My little sister does that now. My older sister does that. Um, he walked through life seeing his work. He, he thought about his work all the time, sitting on the couch, watching a movie. He's thinking and he's teaching himself. He was self-taught. 
And, um, you know, he has paintings um, at the Vatican. He has paintings in a museum in Japan. And um, he just never gave up. So I'm 57, right? And I restarted my career as an artist very late in the game. And I sabotaged myself many, many times, right? Uh, I'll use another um, biblical analogy, right? The Israelites are freed from Egypt and they're at the Red Sea, the waters part, they cross through. So for me, I have been to the edge so many times. The waters have parted for me so many times. I've got halfway through and because of fear went back, right? I've been at the precipice of success multiple times. And based on my own fear, I stepped back. My father never stepped back, but he also, because of his lack of education, He sabotaged himself in different ways, right? So now for me, I've stepped foot into the Red Sea. I'm not to the promised land. I'm not to Jordan. I'm not to Canaan's land, but I'm in the water. And this time, this day, I'm not turning back. I'm I'm, I'm walking it through. I'm seeing what I'm doing. And I know what I don't know. And then there's a lot I don't, you know, I don't know what I don't know, but I do know I'm very conscious of what I don't know and where I have to get to. And this time where my dad didn't necessarily take a lot of help and and, and create a collective of people who could bring him forward um, because the people who had brought him forward before took advantage of him, you know, and he was of the mindset don't trust anybody but yourself. I, I mean, I understand there's wisdom in that, but there's also um, there's chains that are with that as well. It shackles you. And so, you know, I'm looking for my tribe. I'm staying aware of what's in front of me. I'm aware of when fear, when I want to sabotage, when I want to turn back, when I you know, when I say, oh, no, 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 don't be seen. Don't, don't, don't be seen. I do it anyway. I do it anyway. And um, so, yeah, dad is, um, dad was, he was full of joy. You know, this man did not live in, um, in a place of anger. And he had a whole lot of things happen to him. And early on, he, he acted on that anger. Dude was not a, a, a saint by any, any means, no stretch of the imagination. I don't want to, because my parents are gone, you know, turn them into saints. There's no sainthood with my parents. Okay. But when my father died, People were still lining up at the door to say goodbye to him. They And we had to turn them away. People told stories about his generosity and his gifts and his, his, his seeing people, right? There was a bag boy, um, you know, in a grocery store, you know, the... Mm-hmm. the bags of groceries and he had written a memorial to my dad he said you know here was this famous artist and he was famous in his time but i think died um not not in fame and uh anyway this kid said you know 
every time Jimmy Lovejoy came in, he, he would just talk to you like you were the whole world. He just saw you. And here he was, this famous man, and he just saw you. And he made me feel so important. And I love that. And that's so true. So, yeah, that's that that's the gift of my dad. I try to do that. I have two things I want, I want to ask you. <laughs> okay. Nick. And for, I mean, you mentioned two things, at least two, I think two things stood out for me as more accurate. And the first one is on kind of this idea of self-sabotage, right? And how I, th- I think we do that a lot in different ways. And you even mentioned it earlier, right? You, you had all these opportunities in a way kind of presented to you to do something. And then, you know, it, it didn't happen or something else caused it not to happen or you know, you decided to leave it or step away from it. But I want to start with, man, I want to be able to hopefully I can get all of this. I know I don't have enough, I don't have enough time to sit down and ask you all the things that I want to ask you. Okay. When it comes to self, self-sabotage, if you were to kind of look back as you're kind of going through this experience of self-sabotage, what's like those triggers that stood out for you or that you could tell somebody to look out for if they were about to self-sabotage? Oh, um, I'll use a most recent example. Um, well, even today, right? Um, I'll go with today as an example. Talking to you, being available to you, right? To, to say yes to the podcast. We all have self-talk that happens, I'm not worthy. I listen to all the people on your podcast and I'm like, these people are doing things. They're going places. They are places. They are the people. You are the people, you in particular, right? Um, TED Talks, Olympian, medalist, like you're the man. And I'm thinking in my head, the fourth grader in my head, Who are you to be talking? Who are you to be sharing? And, you know, I didn't send you the information. I, you know, we, we tell ourselves stories. We have a narrative in our head, a running habitual narrative, a dance that we do. Step one, two, three, four. Step one happens. We're triggered to do step two. Then all of a sudden we're into three and four. And before you know it, we finish the old narrative. Mm. And so staying super conscious of what step I'm at. Okay. I'm trying to talk myself out of doing this podcast. I'm trying to tell myself you have nothing to say. You, you've done nothing. Like I, in, So that's my own personal narrative. I'm not Gordon Parks. I'm not Ruddy Roy. I'm not, you know, and the list goes on, right? Comparison is the thief of joy. So it definitely was coming at me hard. And so I just had to stop it and say, stay open, keep walking. And so I was able to stop at step two. I had to, to, to go and send and say, you know what? I'm going to be available. I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to stifle the insecure narrative that I have told myself or had been told to me 
I'm going to stop it. I'm aware of the track playing in my head, but I'm going to stop it. So going back, so that's a present day. Going back to um, being in Australia and meeting Stevie Wonder, right? That was the biggest self-sabotage, I think, not, it was, it definitely is up there. Because when I was in art school, I had gone to see the movie um, Out of Africa. And man, I loved that. And I loved the photographs from it, the cinematography in it, and then album covers. You know, there was some really incredible album covers. And I wanted to do that. You know, I'm in Australia and I'm being bold and I'm, you know, going through a divorce now at, you know, at the time that this happened. I finished this 30 day shoot and I'm with a bunch of models and we think we're everything and we come into the concert and we're in the VIP section. And this American black guy comes up to me and I'm just so hungry for anything American at this point, right? I just want to hear American voices. I want to know what's happening. I'm at a Stevie Wonder concert. I've grown up with Stevie Wonder. My parents loved him. And this dude comes up to me and starts talking to me. And I'm just asking him questions about what's happening in the States. And then I say, hey, so how did you start working for Stevie Wonder? How did that happen? He goes, oh, I'm Stevie Wonder's brother. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm Diana Ross's sister. Like, what? (laughs) 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 We just go on. I'm like, I don't believe him. And he's like, no, no, really, I am. And so, you know, he tells me the story. And so we just continue talking. And um, so he says, so every concert, so he goes away. Okay, he goes away a couple of times, brings some other Americans up, and we're just talking. And then everybody goes away. And he says, um, do you want backstage passes? And, you know, all my model friends are like, yeah, we do. And like, this is so cool. I'm 24 at the time. And um, so uh, he then says, Steve sings with people. He always brings someone up to the stage every, um, every concert. Would you like to sing with Stevie? I'm like, shut the front door. Yes. And he's like, well, you know, you don't have to, you you know, you don't have to say yes. I'm like, of course I'm saying yes. And I had sung in high school and was in swing choir and, you know, like I could sing, but it wasn't like I was ever going to be Diana Ross Mm -hmm. ever. So um, I'm not dressed for it. Literally, we had come from shooting. And so I'm, you know, kind of not presentable in that sense to be on stage so everybody we change clothes they give me their stuff and you know we fix myself up and I go on stage and I sing with Steve and afterward we're all backstage and then Milton comes up to me again he's like Steve wants to meet you meet you and you know would you like to come back to the hotel with us and hang out and like like, stop asking me what I like to just assume everything you ask me, I'm gonna say yes. Like, yes. So we go back to the hotel, the models do, and I'm sitting and Milton's sort of occupying my time. And I'm like, where's Steve? <laughs> so bodyguard comes down and said, you know, whispers to Milton. And so then I go up to the room. And in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm about to be somebody's groupie here in a minute. <laughs> Like what? And but the, but that wasn't the case. Like 
I go up to his room. He's in sweats. Bodyguard stands outside. Literally, I sit up all night talking to Steve, just talking about everything. He's sharing stories. I'm sharing stories. Next thing you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and the bodyguard has had to stay, stand outside up awake all night, had no idea. So then they asked me, would I be there? You know, would I consider being their photographer back in the States, you know, Milton? And I said, no, I said, no, you know, I know natural light, like the back of my hand, I understand it can manipulate it, but I'm not a studio photographer. I was really scared of you know, strobes and flash. I had always had bad results. I'd never been taught it. So I said, no, but I would, you know, in a year's time after my internship, I would do it. And Mm. that was like the Colorado River current, fast moving and never comes back to you ever. I stayed friends. I'd fly out to LA, hang out with them. They'd be in Phoenix. You know, I'd hang out with them. Friends for years, but never their photographer. So, yeah, that was a missed opportunity. And that self-sabotage from that really came from fear. I'm not good enough. Mm, Yeah. And I think that that is the essence of all self-sabotage. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. And, you know, at 24, I thought I was doing the right thing. And I was so not self-aware. So not self-aware. That's incredible. I was even just jotting some things down as you were speaking. And you're right. It's almost like this, like, I I got like three steps. So I'll call it a three-step process, I guess, for everybody. But like, there are three kind of main things in there. It was just like, you know, first, you have that fear, right? And it's that fear of kind of being unworthy. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this, right? And then that, like you mentioned, that narrative starts to play in your head about like all these things. Then you start to go over and I start to compare yourself. Well, you know, I, I work well with natural light. I don't work well in artificial light and I've had bad results before and I don't know it as well as I do. You know, the insecurity now, it starts to build up of like, you know, what happens if I take a bad shot and, and this and that and, you know, that and this. And then it boils up into the point where, you know, you, you, you end up, like you said, talking yourself out of it, of, of doing it because you don't feel again, back to that fear element. And then fear comes in again, even heavier than it did before. And it becomes like this weird, like loop that just keeps on playing over and over again. And the more it plays, like the bigger, bigger it gets and the stronger it gets and the more dominating it becomes until it dominates your entire view. And then you don't see the opportunity anymore. And then it's gone. You know, the thought that just came to me, I feel, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but when you were talking, I thought none of us are worthy, except it anyway. None of us deserve take it anyway. Like no one, I don't care what their education is, what their, everybody has a narrative, do it anyway, accept it anyway. The gift is yours. The universe brings stuff to us. And we're like, no, no, I didn't do enough. Well, a gift isn't about what you did. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. Take it. Right. So if I, if I wished anything, that would be it. So yeah. I guess, you know, going back, that's what I wish that I understood. Like spiritually, we get it. 
you know, and for anyone who's listening, that's not, you know, a Christian, that, that's your thing. And, you know, I'm not preaching to you. I'm, I'm talking only what I live. For me, salvation is a gift. I didn't do anything. I didn't deserve it. I sin every day like everybody else. I've had this. I've done this. I haven't murdered anybody. Okay. So, but the point is, is gifts are just that. And I think when the world brings us opportunities, take it. No one's ever done enough for the gifts that come, the blessings that come. But that's why they're blessings. It's not a paycheck. Opportunities is not a paycheck. You work for a paycheck, but you don't work for a blessing. I'm going to write that down. That was really good. Dude, I, I'm hearing it myself. I'm like, yes, this is, I need to hear this. Sometimes I swear the things that, that I say, not that I think I'm always profound, but I'm like, I needed to hear that. Wherever it came from, thank you. You know, it's interesting because even as you mentioned, I think when you go back to like when you were a kid, you know, I'm thinking about even when I was a kid, right? And obviously it's totally different. Like I'm pretty much still a kid, if you think about it, maybe from your perspective, you know, even. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And like as a kid too, you know, there are many times where like I can relate to like, you know, those experiences of being ostracized in a way, you know, feeling unworthy for different things. And I've asked this to somebody else too, who I thought was for sure like, you know, you, like you are, you are the thing, right? And they mentioned, you know, like, I don't feel like it compared to somebody else, right? And they don't feel like it compared to somebody else. And it can go on forever. Like it doesn't stop. So you might as well just leave that alone because that's a, that's a battle that you're never going to win at the end of the day. And as you were saying that, I was like, well, you know what? It's a battle that I'm realizing at the, at the end of the day, no matter what you achieve or go through or experience, there's always going to be somebody else who is probably going to be better than you. And they're going to think the same way about somebody else who is quote unquote better than them at the end of the day, yes. or feels better than them. And I think that it's important to stand in the space that we're in and own that space, own that circle of influence, own that sphere of light because it's your light and it's your space. And you know, yes, there's, I don't think that it's a hierarchy, you know, in the terms of British royalty or any kind of royalty or corporate, you know, tiered structures. I think if we start thinking in terms of a journey and, you know, you're at the beginning of yours, I'm at this path, I've learned certain things on my journey, but you might be further along in a journey, you know, you're an athlete, and you trained, and you did what you did, and you have success from that. But people have different versions of success, and they need to define success for themselves. Your success cannot be my success. I'm not made like you. I'm not meant to live and walk your path. And until we embrace our own particular path and identify what we see as our success, like my success for me is all about freedom. Like freedom, super important to me. And I had to come to the conclusion you know, what commitments was I willing to take on? Did those commitments hinder my sense of freedom? And if they did, then say no. But in saying no, you know, it let go of some capital versions of success, right? 
I owned a big house. I now don't own a house. But what I do own is freedom. I can get in my car and travel for the next month and not work. And that does not mean, you know, for me, fiscal freedom does not mean what it means to someone else. It's my own version of it. And, Mm. you know, when I talk to my siblings and, you know, they have their amazing lives and then they look at me, they think of me as a hippie or, you know, weird. I, I remember giving a talk to some elementary kids and I was talking about the way I had photographed something and it was in the Chicago airport and I'm laying on the ground shooting, you know, I'm on my stomach, the camera's resting on the ground and I show the kids how I shot it. And this little girl pipes up and she says, weren't you afraid that people would think you were weird? Mm. And I said, but I am weird. And that's okay. I know who I am. And and so it's like an orange. Why should an orange be afraid of the grape saying, oh, you're orange, you're, you're brown. Like, of course, this is what I was made to be. This is who I am. So embrace it. That's so good. And even as you're talking about, you know, that light, right? Owning that the light that, that we all have to shine. I was thinking about it as a lamp and I have like, you know, a couple of lights that are here, like, you know, on my desk and my setup. And there's no point in, you know, this mini lamp I have here trying to be this big lamp that I have over here. Like, why? Like, you know, like you weren't made to be over there, right? And if you were, I'm obviously talking to an inanimate object, but like, you know, if this lamp was that lamp over there, then I wouldn't need this lamp and it'd be pointless. It'd be useless to me. I'd throw it away, right? I have this lamp for a purpose right here. It's perfect for exactly where it is right now, shining the light that it needs to shine in the way it needs to shine it. That's it. And as long as it does that, it is exactly what I needed to do. And I put it exactly where I needed to put it so that it can do its job to the best of its ability. Right. And you know what? I think that the lamp only fails. We only fail when we stop living into the purpose we were created for. So that lamp fails when it tries to be a pen. Well, you're never going to be a pen. You have no ink. Like, move on. Be the lamp. Shine your light. I'm never going to be an Olympian. So why am I going to waste my time training and killing myself? I'm meant to be a photographer. I'm meant to show people the world or the light or the story or the narrative. Do that. Be that. Know who you are. Man, I think that's exactly, you know, what I think sometimes was missing. And the point of like, if you know who you are and you're confident in who you are, Right. And where you are, even for that matter, or where you happen to be right now, then it doesn't matter. Like, you know, you don't have to worry about what people think. And I think that's also part of it, too. Right. It, it's fear of what somebody else thinks about me doing something that I a enjoy doing, that I like doing. That's part of who I am. Right. It's that fear. Of, it's almost, again, that fear of of being punched instead of just allowing the punch to, to hit you so that maybe you can do, you can, you can strike next, you know, with, with the upper hand or uppercut or whatever. I'm mixing up boxing terms. Sorry to all the boxers out there. Right. But like, you know, it's, it's being able to be so confident in that and stand and stand strong in that, in that knowledge of who you are. And I think it even goes back to what we were saying before. Part of that knowledge is missing of who you are, of where you come from, of why you're here. And when part of that is gone, then it leaves you a little bit uncertain in in a lot of respects. And that allows for somebody else to maybe step in and be like, question who you are, question what you do, 
and leave you even more confused. Yes, you are. As you said, that last part, the visual that came for me is the ship without a rudder or without a sail, right? And that sail is your purpose, your destiny, your way to navigate the world and go forward. And in the rudder, directs that i don't know all the shipping terms but it's a it's a biblical um tenet as well to have an anchor to have a rudder to know your purpose and when you don't have that when you don't know what you stand on whatever it is anything that comes along any storm that blows anybody that pushes your boat knocks you off course because you don't see your purpose and destiny. And again, it goes back to fear. And so people will see my name and maybe only 10 people will listen. It doesn't matter. There's going to be one out of 10 that will need to hear this particular thing. And that is be bold and courageous enough to examine yourself and unpack your own personal story and then choose what to put back in that luggage to go forward with. So, you know, those are the lessons that I learned from my series. Like there's a lot of lies and a lot of myths that we were told that I personally was told as a child. Like, you know, my childhood, I say we were the Adams family. I speak well of my parents and I wish that I had, you know, seen my mother as I already said. But when I said I wasn't going to give them sainthood in terms of making them seem as if they were something else, childhood was hard. Childhood was very hard. And the experiences that we had with racism within our own family dictated a lot of my own self-narrative, right? And so I really had to examine that. And only just recently And I'll give this plug for Clubhouse. It was in a room I was in and I'm giving advice to some other girl. I'm telling her, you know, she's talking about abuse. And I was saying, if you don't have the courage or the opportunity to speak to the person who harmed you, here's another one of my mother's um, tidbits is to take a photograph of that person, right? To put that photograph on a chair, be in a room where you're safe and it's quiet and speak to that person person. When you did this, this is how I felt. When you said this, this is what I've carried with me, you know, like have that conversation, then put a photograph, find a photograph of yourself as a child and speak to that child and know that you're now the parent of that child, that little child that resides in you. So I'm telling this to the girl and, um, then it's, you know, the, the moderators asking me a question, you know, what were, what were my needs? And I was talking about that self-sabotage. And I was talking about a scripture that I had come upon that said, why haven't you entered the promised land? What, why is it taking you so long? Or why haven't you entered the promised land that God has given to you? And it spoke so deeply to me, like, My promised land is right there in front of me. Why haven't I taken possession of it? So I had to examine that question. And I thought, it's the child in me and those insecurities in me. And what is it? What what am I holding on to that's keeping me from that? And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's the whole concept of being seen, 
of being in the front line and, you know, in our family, being seen, being in the front line could be a problem when you think four marriages, four sets of children moving one to the other, the competition, jockeying for position in the new family that's coming up or your mom replaced the old mom. Like that's a lot of baggage, right? And I'm carrying that forward and I need to unpack that. I need to cut that loose and I need to see myself for who I am and what I was made for and let her be, let her be this person of joy. When I look at the little girl picture of me, oh my gosh, I love her. I love her eyes and the twinkle and the smile that's so open and willing and trusting and loving. And that's who I want to be. And that's who I try to stand in now. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you decided to to go through with this and that you didn't decide to self-sabotage because I think this is awesome. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of times we think that we don't have something to share or something to say. And, you know, like you mentioned, it's I think it's those experiences that we've been through and the things that we learned through those experiences that, you know, are really powerful, I think, at the end of the day, more powerful than we think. And it's interesting because I'm looking at it like somebody's asking me questions about, you know, for example, going to the Olympics or what it's like the trend right now. Yes. It's a big thing. It's very grandiose. It's out there. Everybody can see everybody ask questions about it. The same way that people ask questions about these big experiences, I think the same, the same type of feeling is also directed towards those experiences that seem mundane, right? The only difference is when somebody tells you about a personal experience that they overcome, it's more powerful. In, in a way. And I don't know how to explain that. And, and I think that's why this is so powerful because, you know, for the most part, I don't want to say Olympians are a dime a dozen, but like, <laughs> you know, and, and cause I don't want to discredit it, but I think that like, you know, for an Olympian just to be saying things is, is great. And a lot of people will, will stop and they'll listen for the sake of that. And I'm very grateful and, you know, honored that I have the opportunity to be able to make people even stop, right? To listen. But I think it's experiences like yours and others that people really, they really stop, right? They stop inwardly to be like, wow, this person went through this experience and has come out on the other side of it. And inside, they may not have the ability to, you know, express or ask that. But those are the same questions that they're asking me. How did you experience it? How did you overcome this, right? For the Olympics, whatever. Knowing that they're never going to go to the Olympics or they're never going to, to attempt. Right. But for you, how did you, how did you overcome self-sabotage? How do you, how are you able to step out in this situation? And how are you able to do that? Same thing. Only now, you know, they'll be able to take those experiences and re really apply them. And it really, it connects with them on a, on a, on a bit of a deeper level. Cause then they'll be able to go and actually be like, I know somebody who's actually been through this. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I have, uh, almost like a reference point of how I can navigate the same experience or a similar experience. Well, you know, I can, I can understand that. And I can see that for um, the everyday person, which we all at the end of the day are everyday people. Um, but it's hard to translate the Olympian experience into everyday living. However, having been, you know, an athlete in high school, I ran track. At one point, I was good at it. There's a discipline. There's a mental discipline. I remember waking up in Iowa, middle of winter, 
sleeping in my sweats, shoes next to my bed to wake up and go run in the cold, bitter cold every morning training. Um, and you have to be mentally prepared to do that, to self-impose pain to achieve the next goal, right? And so that is translatable to everyday living. In order to achieve our own particular Olympian medal, we have to first define what that is, and then we have to be willing to self-impose pain, whatever that pain is, if it's unpacking, if it's seeking the truth, if it's staying up till two in the morning, right? That's how you translate the athlete experience, the medical student experience, right? Self-imposed pain. Who wants to go 48 hours with no sleep? Who wants to do that? Right? But I have a brother-in-law. He's just like this world-renowned uh, orthopedic surgeon, Mondume, who is freaking brilliant. But what he went through, what he was willing to sacrifice, self-imposed pain, is what got him his stuff, his definition of success. It's not the comparison of the outcome. It's the, it's the comparison of what did you do? Ooh. How did you overcome? Tell me that and let me put it through my own personal translation system so I can make it applicable. Because, you know, somebody might be listening to me and say, well, I'm not mixed race. Well, my parents have been married their whole life. Well, you know, my parents are still living. I'm only 24. I'm not, you know what, you're about to experience life. I mean, I have an 18 year old at home and she's of the mindset that all is good in the world. Even, I mean, you know, she's going through the pandemic so freaking amazing and with ease, but you know what? She learned that adaptability being on the road for a year. Being alone for a year where we were a community of two. So this isn't difficult for us in that sense. Like she's not crying that she's not with her friends, but that's because her prior experience prepared her for this unknown event. Um, but she still thinks that she's capable. And so when she sees the things her older sisters are going through, she imagines that she's going to do well. Well, the fact is life will set you off course of your true north. It, it will. And it's it's that inner athlete in all of us, the self-discipline that we have to execute to right our ship, to put ourselves back on true north course. Did I say that right? Probably not. You get what I mean. And with her, I try to talk her through a lot of this and, you know, you're loving talking to me. My children get real tired of it. Like, mom, this isn't a lesson for us. Can, can you just listen to my story? Can you just empathize with me? Cause I'm thinking solution. Here's the solution. Take action. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, yeah. and I, it, maybe it's cause you're like that, that same mentality of like, you know, what's the solution? Take action. And something else that you brought up too, in terms of like this true north thing. I heard something not too long ago, actually, about this. And it's funny that's being brought up now. And I have this, for those of you who know me, I have this kind of rule of three, or it's technically two, right? If it comes up once, it's, it's a coincidence. If it comes up twice, 
It's not a coincidence, but it could be. If it's three more than three times, all right, time to pay attention to whatever's going on. This idea of this ship in True North, and I, and again, I heard this not too long ago about like True North and how a lot of sailors they have to be able to distinguish between True North and Magnetic North. And Magnetic North actually pulls you away from your True North in terms of where you want to go. So you could think you're going north, but where you're actually going is away from what True North is, and so you end up going way off course. And so you have to be very aware and know and be able to recognize, A, like you mentioned, where your true north is, kind of where you're going, and then B, also be able to recognize what could potentially draw you off and pull you essentially away or what could pull you towards magnetic north. And it's constantly going back and seeing, am I on track? Am I going towards magnetic north? Yes. Right? Just like everybody. And then putting yourself back on the right path again to be able to make sure that you're going towards that, that true north. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm going to tell you, have you read the book, The Alchemist? Yes, I have. One of my favorite books. Oh, my gosh. And that that is so, that's kind of deeply in me. It speaks so, it speaks to my soul because I firmly believe that who we are, our truest self is who we were as children. I think of it like a circle. We start here. So I'll tell you this. <laughs> I have this whole long thought in my head. My grandson, when he was born, um, gosh, I, I just have to tell you, yeah, look at you pulling it out. Well done. You have the alchemist. Is that the 25th edition? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yes, 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 it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've given that book as a gift so many times to so many people. Everybody listening, do yourself a favor, buy this book. Buy this book. It's everything. Hmm. My, although my daughter thought it was boring <laughs> at the time, but she's only 18, right? And she's like, what? She thinks she has, well, she's still trying to figure her true north out. So it didn't necessarily resonate with her that life will come at you and knock you off course. And, and so the magnetic north, right, can be children, can be jobs, can be debt, can be houses that you own, all these things that tie you down. And you think, I can't do my true destiny. I can't be this because I'm tied down to this. I'm tied down, uh, you know, I owe this and definition of success. Cut that stuff loose. Make a plan to get back on course. You can't turn a semi that's going 70 miles an hour down the freeway. You can't turn it on a dime, but find your exit ramp and turn around, right? That's good. That's what people need to do. Yeah. <laughs> When you look back over the many different experiences that you've gone through and different lessons that you've learned up till now, what are three lessons you've learned or picked up that really stand out for you? So, yeah, the first one is own your space. Don't try to stand in somebody else's space. Own your space and um, shine your own light. That's one. Two. Um, are definitely spiritual ones for me. And so number two is like, if I have to give a talk, um, an artist talk, um, or any kind of talk, I become very conscious of the fear in those e instances. And for me, I recognize that that's ego stepping in. And I find that I need to stand behind God 
and let him walk in front of me and I walk behind him. And I, what I mean by that is, um, I don't need to be worried about someone's judgment of me because I'm fulfilling my purpose. Mm. When I stand in front of that purpose, I get in my own way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And then the third one again is a, is a spiritual tenet for me. And I call it walking the walls of Jericho. And, um, right. The story of the Israelites, they were told to walk the walls of Jericho. And on the seventh, you know, blow the trumpet. God would bring the walls down. The battle belongs to the Lord. So I have to define for me what my walking the walls of Jericho is. And that means doing my work. I don't need to be concerned about the outcome. I just need to do my work, whatever that is. Right. If my goal is, I'll, I'll use photography as an example, to have an art show. Okay. To have a, a, a gallery showing. What does the work look like for that? I can't just sit back and be like, Oh, I wish I had a show. God, I wish this gallery would look at me or these people would know who I was. That's the end result. That's the walls coming down. I don't have to be worried about that. I just need to walk the walls of Jericho and decide and know what the walking the walls of Jericho is and just do that. And at the end, for me, God will bring down the walls that were meant to come down, but I don't have to blow them up. I don't have to, you know, excavate and pull down and tear down. That's not my job. My job is doing the walk, walking the walk. So those are my three things. Of those of those three things, which one stands out to you the most? Which one would you say is like the most important? Standing behind God. Everything for me falls into place when I don't jump in front of God. And I did that a whole lot in my life. And I just got into a whole lot of trouble. That's my own personal. So all the other stuff kind of, you know, comes into play behind that. And for me, God is purpose, God is destiny. And so people can translate that for themselves, how they see fit. But for me, God is purpose and standing behind God, everything falls into place for me. I get in the most trouble when I step outside of my purpose. Mm -hmm. We kind of touched on this a little bit. I was going to ask if there's anything looking back that you would want to change or maybe do over again i know you mentioned stevie wonder incident which i think anybody in your position would probably want to do over again so there's that but is there anything else maybe that stands out to you of like you know that maybe you like to do again or even potentially regret or is anything like that or you know no regrets no worries with without a doubt without a doubt um it would definitely be knowing and understanding my daughter better parenting her differently Definitely, definitely that because for me, hindering someone else's growth, all the mistakes that I've made in my life, all the foolishness and the idiocies that come with youth, those are fine. We're all going to fail at, at something. The do over would be that. It would be that. It would be to see this girl, but I can't undo that. And, you know, I accept that, but that would definitely be the thing for sure. Mm. Cause it, you know, 
anything that we do in life, when, when we only harm ourselves, when we only sabotage ourselves, it's okay. You can do it again. You can do it over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm good with that. I can't do over Buddha's upbringing. You know, I can't undo that. I can't have a repeat. She's grown. She's an adult. So we have to be super careful about our impact on other people. We have to be conscious of our words and our actions. And we can't be so selfish. And I'll say, I think selfishness on my part, even though at the time I didn't think that. Um, but I think that when we are so possessed with our own self, and we're not aware of the people in our sphere. I, I have this idea that, you know, that whole saying, um, you think the world revolves around you. The truth is it does right? You are in your own little world and your world revolves around you. But the thing that we don't remain conscious of is how our world intersects with other people. And that at that point, we have to become conscious of that intersection. And our world has to turn a little differently to intersect and impact them. And we can't be so selfish to say, no, your world intersected with mine and you need to accommodate me. No, we need to be servant-hearted at times and accommodate the other person and be conscious of that and intentional with that. Yeah. You touched on something that I thought was really interesting, which was our world revolving around us, right? Your world revolves around you, my world revolves around me, and then at some point our worlds, quote-unquote, collide or interact, right? Right. And if your world interacts with my world, then either that they just, they crash and we end up damaging, I end up damaging your world, you end up damaging mine. Because if two worlds collide, right? Our worlds are very different. Your world is very different than mine. For example, your world could be like an earth and my world could be like a Jupiter. And so we're two essentially different planets. And how can we coexist together? You find the universal connection within and the things that don't line up the different universes, that's where you learn from one another. You exchange knowledge, you exchange information. You don't take it, you don't colonize it, you don't rob it, thieve it, you share it, you ask for it, but you give an exchange. Too often, people come into one another's lives and they come to take. They don't come to give, they come to take. Take, steal, rob, colonize, overtake, implement their ideas, replace yours with theirs. But the idea for me, and you see, we don't even have a choice, honestly. Like our world has collided now. And it, and it's a gentle collision. It's a, it's a, it's a collision that came with the asking, can I intersect with your world? Yes. How much time do I have? How much time do you need? It's an exchange. It's a mutual exchange. But there are people who come into other people's lives and they seek to destroy, to devour. And the other person, the unsuspecting person, before they know it, their whole world has been destroyed. And they don't even know how to rebuild it right? So that's the being very, very conscious of what we do to one another and why 
why our worlds collided and asking permission. And, you know, do you understand me? Do I understand you? Okay, I don't understand you. Can you please explain it more? I think um, one thing that I understood with my children um, is when, when we have our children, you know, they mirror us, right? It's a circle upon a circle and our, our world overlays there. They're just a reflection of us. They're not reflecting anything back but us. But as they grow, their world starts leaving ours. And now they start to have their own ideas and they don't reflect us. And that's when you start hearing that whole statement. Remember who you represent. Remember the family name. You represent us and do what, you know, looks good and makes us look good. We hear that. Somebody out there right now knows exactly what I'm talking about. You represent the family name. So then if they don't reflect in a way that we like now, you know, we struggle with them. And and that was certainly my experience. Um, Even within, you know, my upbringing, two of my sisters or one of my sisters, she and I were kind of like on the outs. We didn't reflect with the family. Mm -hmm. reflected we heard from one segment of the family oh you think you're better than us right that that's where you start to hear some of that stuff you're not reflecting someone else's world the way they know their world to be like somebody else's world makes this world feel bad again it goes back to self-acceptance and you know whatever so um yeah, it's okay when your world doesn't match mine. I'm good with that because I'm secure with my world. And I'm going to come into yours and I'm going to ask you for things just like you're going to ask me for things. And there's a mutual giving, but it doesn't always happen like that. Relationships, the breakups, all that stuff. It's just about, you know, everybody coming in and the world revolves around me. Well, yeah, but your world is in mine now and we have to figure out how to mm-hmm. cope this that's really good how how can we work together to almost in a way kind of create a new world yeah that both of us can can be in and, and enjoy yeah and you know what so that circle that exists what is what is the shape whatever it's called that's the land that you live in together but then there's still that outer segment other people are living in another section of your world and you're engaged with them and you know it's it's like you know you in a relationship that you're in, each person has to be confident enough to let you still live in your world the way you know it to be. You've agreed on this land that you live in, but there's this out here where she doesn't exist in it. It's a whole, you know, she's not an Olympian. Maybe she is, but whatever. That's your world. And and the person needs to be okay with that and not be threatened by it or not think it reflects on them. You know, like, Mm. I think for me, just relationship wise, that has been a struggle that I have always encountered is somehow people are threatened by my world. And what happens is you start to squash yourself down to fit into someone else's world. And then you become less of yourself. Hold on. Say that again. Say say that again about just say it again. (laughs) (laughs) when you squash yourself down to fit into someone else's world you become less of yourself 100 percent right 100 percent 
Yeah. And, and people do that all the time. They lose themselves trying to fit in someone else's world. And when you find yourself doing that, you need to understand that's not, that's not the world you belong in. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta go. Gotta go. And quick. <laughs> and quickly. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Wow. Okay. So this also kind of brings up a really good point. And, you know, I, I think a couple more questions here and I think we'll be, I think we'll be all right. Um, I heard you mention this in passing uh, on another talk that I think that you gave about why you went to Australia mm. and you went to Australia. I, I don't want to tell your story or even like, well, first know the, the entire story. I just know that you went to re- Australia on, on, on terms of a relationship. <laughs> right. And so, First off, I've been to Australia, so that's the only connection that I have there in, in terms of that story. The fact that I've been in the same place as Cuba. So that's literally the beginning and end of that entire connection right there, number one. So when I heard it, I'm like, oh, cool, I've been to Australia. So like that's pretty much the, <laughs> like my reaction. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, I, I guess I wanted you to kind of touch on that. Obviously, why you went to Australia for a relationship? Why did you stay in Australia? And then I think in this whole kind of context of relationships, if you could give somebody one piece of advice that you learned throughout your experience so far when it comes to relationship, what that one tip would be. Right. Um, it, it really does coincide with the whole, you know, world's intersecting, doesn't it? Um, so well done. Like, you're such a good interviewer. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that lightly. Like I wouldn't have been able to bring that back around. Um, yeah, so I went to Australia. I was still in art school and I had met this young Australian who was charming and funny and super sexy and super cute, right? Like, let's just be real. And um, based on my own family history, right, that that family dynamic. And I wanted to, um, I wanted a family. I wanted my definition of what a family was. And there was my soon to be husband presenting that to me, right? And he couldn't stay in the States. And, you know, where he went, I was going to follow. So left art school, um, went to Australia. Yeah right? So first clue right there. But it's not like I gave up my art. I went and um, we were there. It turned out, you know, he was a very worldly, very wealthy, came from wealth. And um, I did not fit into his world on any level. Okay. I was this Iowa girl, small town Iowa girl, no worldly experience, at all, at all, and not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, um, unless I was living with my dad and he was selling art and we were wealthy at one point, right? But it it wasn't like um, his family. And so Americans versus Australians, you know, I was loud. I was, uh, to their standards, uneducated to their standards. I mean, these were some seriously smart people. But he was insecure 
I'm trying to really parse my words to be careful um, in, in, in what I say, just more to protect him than, sure. than myself. Um, and it's, his insecurity got in the way. Like he was surrounded by very powerful, strong women. And they kind of ruled his world. And so then, of course, he connects with a powerful person. Although I was young, I was still definitely feeling myself and definitely coming from my mother's perspective of I can do and my dad's perspective of I can be and have whatever I want. It's there for the taking. Um, but we got into trouble very early on. Um, we did not have his family's support. We did not have, you know, my family was in the States and they at the time really didn't know what support looked like for, you know, young couples. And again, I was somewhat of the black sheep of the family um, in a weird way. I was straight A student, man. I was like, I didn't do drugs. I didn't party. I didn't do anything crazy at all. But I was still on the outside of that family circle. And so that created its own insecurity within me. So there was a lot of resentment. Then to add on to that, my passion for photography and my very, very clear direction and my very clear understanding of what my true north was, was a hundred percent different than his. He did not know his true north. He did not know where he stood or what he wanted. He just wanted a brown skinned girl. And I was that girl. Yeah. Fast forward to the end of that relationship. I wake up one morning and he's packing. And the wardrobes are open and his clothes are out and, you know, I'm not really quite awake. And I mm -hmm. say, um, I didn't know you guys had a game. I didn't know you had a trip. And um, he says, I'm leaving. I said, yeah, I see that. Where are you guys going? He says, no, I'm leaving you. I'm like, it's not registering in my head <laughs> at all. I'm like, but where are you guys going? <laughs> Where's the know. game? What's going right. on? Yes, yes. <laughs> Finally, he's like, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving the marriage. And I said, well, dude, you're not coming back. And I mm. said, you've been talking to your mother. And um, her philosophy was that you were only responsible for your own happiness, not anyone else's, your own. He was not responsible for mine or for his daughters. And there's truth in that statement. I won't discredit the truth. You are only responsible for how you view the world. But in this situation, it, it was not that. There was so much more to that story. Um, so he left. And um, when I say that the dissolving of that marriage was like the movie, The War of the Roses, it was the war. You'll have to watch that movie sometime. To the War of the Roses. It. Yeah. It was definitely a bad thing. At the end of the day, I came back to the States kind of in the um, cloak of night. I left town without telling anybody. I um, stayed with someone in Cairns for two weeks. When we got on the plane, I had someone else take Alicia on the plane and I went separately because we could be identified very easily. She was blonde hair and blue eyed and I was dark and, you know, long curly hair. 
And so we had a white couple take Alicia on the plane and then I came after and we're leaving. And um, there's a cyclone off the coast and the plane turns around. But I think we've been discovered and I think they're turning the plane around to disembark me and I start crying. And the attendant is like, ma'am, what's the matter? I'm like, why, why is the plane turning around? She's like, oh, there's a, there's a uh, uh, cyclone off the coast. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, I go back to the States. I've never been back to Australia. Um, he and I have, of course, since, you know, found our place in the world. He's remarried, has children. Um, I like the wife, but my story, our story, um, and my understanding of what took place and the need for family support and that him not knowing who he was and what he was about, she validated that. Like it, it wasn't this, you know, cloudy thing. I'm right. And that we were super young, you know, we were married at 20. Yeah. Like I was desperate to start a family and have a real family, leave it to beaver unit. And, um, you know, I didn't know what I was about. I didn't know how to make that relationship work. Neither did he, we didn't have people supporting us in the working of that. Mm. Um, his marriage now is, you know, what it is because her family really taught them how to do that. But to this day, we would have never worked because of who I am and who he is talking about worlds colliding and matching. This was like, I don't know. I, I don't know science enough as far as planets go um, to say there's no way we could live on Mars. And his world was Mars to my earth. There was no way it, yeah. our way of thinking and being and doing and seeing um, I love him. I do. He's a lovely person, but I cannot fold my wings in enough to live in that world. And so the advice goes to that. Um, if you find yourself having to fold your wings in and you cannot fly freely and fully and gracefully, then that's not the world for you. Don't clip your wings to live in someone else's world. I don't care how cute they are, how sexy they are, how charming they are, how wealthy they are. Don't do it. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> if you had a time machine and you're able to travel back in time and speak to a younger version of yourself, you can pick the point. You pick a point, travel back in time um, to a younger version of yourself, to a younger Tony, and you can only tell her one thing. Wow. What, what would that one thing be? Dude, I don't, there's only one other point in this whole conversation where I felt emotional. And that was, you know, what would I, you know, if I went back, it would be, you know, talking to my mother. Um, but I feel super emotional right now. I like have tears in my eyes and I feel sort of choked up um, with it. So I would definitely um, go to, um, I think I might have been three years old, um, maybe even two, two and a half, three years old. So in that age, right? Mm. Somewhere between three and five, bad things started happening, probably four or five. So I would definitely say to her, 
Whew, wow. Um, I would say that you are loved and, and you are valuable and you are beautiful and things will happen to you and it will make you doubt yourself. It will make you not believe in good and possibilities, but believe that they still exist. Hold fast and hold true to who you are because you will one day come back into yourself. So stay the course. Mm. Love yourself and don't let anyone into your life who doesn't see you and who doesn't love you for who you are and doesn't raise you up further and shine brightly for you. Why would you tell yourself that? <sighs> because I stopped valuing myself as, you know, as, as things happen to me. Um, I stopped being seen. I, I gave up pieces of myself. I hurt other people as a result of that. I lost my way um, many, many times. And, um, you know, when I talk about looking back and seeing how, you know, God came back in and, you know, was there for me. I, there are people in my life who came in at just the right time and, and set me back on course and would tell me those things. But those narratives, the, the, the dysfunction in our families um, were, were the louder voices and they hushed my own inner voice and they were louder than my own inner knowledge um, and so, you know, I let people hurt me mm. and I hurt others. And um, so that's why, it, you know, to, um, to comfort her and to let her know you're going to come through to the other side and, you know, to keep your core self pure and true and protected. Because sometimes no one else is going to protect you. And sometimes people are going to need to be protected from you because you're hurt, you're angry, and you'll strike out. <laughs> Let me wipe my face. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a really powerful reminder. Thanks for being vulnerable enough to share that with, with everybody. Thank you for asking the question. I don't think I've ever said that out loud before. So you heard it first, just you and me. So thank you. Tony, this has been absolutely incredible from start to finish. The minute that I heard you speak, I, I, I knew that we had to have a conversation. And so super glad that we did. I couldn't imagine it going any better. And it did. So again, super grateful for you taking time out of your day to to sit down and share your experiences and to be very vulnerable in sharing. I really appreciate it. I know the people who listen to this are going to really appreciate that. So I, I want to say that to you and, you know, give you some of your flowers while you're still here. I personally really appreciate you taking time of your day. I appreciate you and, you know, your experiences. And, you know, if they haven't touched anybody, you know, at least for the, at least, you know, that they, they, they've impacted me. And so that's all that matters to me. You know, I, I, I recognize there will be others that will listen to it or not listen to it. Um, 
that this conversation is with you and for you and, you know, anyone else who hears it and there's residual benefit. I'm really grateful for that. And, you know, you can tell your listeners at any point they can reach out to me or talk to me or ask me questions or find me or, you know, whatever. But this was conversation for you. You know, I have thousands of questions for you and I know we're going to talk again, um, not podcast wise, but just, you know, so. Yeah. Like I'm not going to talk to you again. (laughs) I'm done with you, man. (laughs) Speaking of which, where can people, you know, if if they want to reach out to you and and they want to talk to you and they want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? So, right. There's the website, which, you know, as we talked about, www.mynameislovejoy.com. On Clubhouse, it's my name is Lovejoy. Um, Instagram is my name is dot Lovejoy. Someone stole my moniker. I, I fight for it all the time and I still haven't got it. It makes me crazy. Um, but it's my name is dot Lovejoy on Instagram. And I have like four Instagram accounts. All you have to do is type in my name is Lovejoy and I show up now. Uh, and, you know, my email is easy, too. It's TonyLovejoy at Mac.com. And, you know, if you're going to spam me, you know, spam me, I'll filter it. If you have questions, there's really, there might be a stupid question because I don't believe in the whole there's not a stupid question. There are, but you can ask it. I give you permission to ask it. And I may or may not answer it. I may say to you, dude, come on now, what? Hmm. Um, but there's room to ask questions and I honor those questions. And, you know, if somebody needed help or wanted to talk through something, I'm always there for that. And that for me is honoring my mother because she would do the same. So yeah, reach out, reach out. Anyway, that's everything. (laughs) That's awesome. So don't be shy. Feel free to reach out and connect and send her a message um you know let her know what you thought if you have any questions or anything like that um feel free to reach out she she's there you have her information there and it'll be linked also uh below so make sure you check that out and again tony thank you so much for your time it has been incredible from start to finish thank you from the bottom of my heart really appreciate it i can't think i can't thank you enough so Well, I hug you through this horrible, you know, time of ours through Zoom. I so wish we were in person. I just, I embrace you and I cannot wait to one day encounter you in person. 100%. I second that. Hey, thanks so much for listening. That's it for today's episode. For more episodes or for any details about The Inner Olympian or anything like that, you can check us out on Instagram at theinnerolympian.co. And you can also check us out at theinnerolympian.com. So that's theinnerolympian.com. Also, if you like the show, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a comment, leave a review, leave five stars. As well, if you have any questions, comments, or anything like that that you'd like to share, feel free to send a message to support at theinnerolympian.com or send me a message on you know Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, Let me know what's going on and I'll see you guys next time. So until then, peace. <laughs>